Please remain standing for the reading of scripture. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word, John chapter 6, be reading verses 16 and 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible story of our Savior walking on the water, displaying his power before the disciples over creation. Father, I pray now that as we look into this passage and contemplate its implications for us as followers of Christ, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Father, that you would come and speak through your word and speak to the hearts of your people and that you would bring comfort. I pray that the truths that are found in this story would be a balm to the souls who feel alone or isolated, or distant even from you. God, would you come and meet with your people this morning, we ask, that you would work for us, for our good, and work for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, this past week I heard an old saying that I haven't heard in a while. I mean, it's a common saying. I'm sure you have heard it too. It's a saying that says, God helps those who help themselves. A couple of nights ago I spent an evening watching Little House on the Prairie with my family, of course because those are the kinds of things you watch when you have daughters. But it's a good show. I'd be lying to you if I said I did not enjoy it. However, a caveat to that is there are some times where there is some pretty bad theology that we have to sift through and work through and talk through as a family. And on this, this past week, the, the preacher in the little rural town got up and exhorted his people with the old saying, God helps those who help themselves. That's bad theology. And despite what some people actually think, that is nowhere to be found in the Bible. In fact, if that were true, we would all be in trouble. For in our natural state, none of us even desire to help ourselves, not in an ultimate or spiritual way. No, the truth is, God has helped those who could not and would not help themselves. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. And then a couple verses later, 5.10, he says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Theology matters. And this is why we are to test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Even when watching seemingly innocent shows like Little House on the Prairie. But I kind of wonder if the writers of that show had heard that saying so many times that they assumed it to be in the Bible. It actually comes from Aesop's fables. That's the earliest uh, recording we have of that saying. But the truth is, there's a lot of little quips like that that people assume are in the Scriptures, but they are not. Maybe you've heard a couple of these. Uh, Cleanliness is next to godliness. Not in the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. Not in the Bible. It's the love of money. How about this one? The lion will lay down with the lamb. Not in the Bible. It's actually the wolf that will lay down with the lamb in Isaiah 11. And then there is a popular one that sounds close to a biblical text, but it is utterly not true. And that is that God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever heard that? It's a common saying, but it is a total misreading of a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The point of 1 Corinthians 10 is not that God will not give you more than you can ever handle. The point is that God will provide in the temptation the grace that you need to endure. It is not to say that God will not give you more than handle because He will. On the contrary, God will give you more than you can handle. Simple life experience ought to be enough to teach us that. But the Scripture is also very explicit about this. God frequently gives us more than we can handle. And there's many examples in Scripture to demonstrate that. But the good news is, He does this for a reason. It is not without purpose. And it is always for the good of His people. And we're going to see a clear demonstration of that today with this experience of the disciples. They will experience the full-bore reality of that truth in this passage. God giving them more than they can handle for their good. As we we look at this story, this interlude between the feeding of the 5,000 and the bread of life discourse that, that gives explanation to that miracle, we have this incredible story about how Christ got back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew and Mark and John all tie these stories together. Uh, This undoubtedly happened all within the same 24 hours. Uh, But the point of this is, is not for the crowds at large. They were not there, nor did they see any of this, nor do they even get told about it. The point of this was Jesus was discipling his disciples. This was Jesus continuing to build their faith and to expose their hearts. Now, this entire thing happened as a lesson for the disciples from the great teacher, and now it serves as a continuing lesson for all of Christ's disciples who read this account. And the lesson is all about trust. 
It is about understanding the truth of who Christ is and why we can and should trust Him in all circumstances. As we look at this, we're going to trace this out simply in two parts. First, we're going to look at the God-ordained circumstances that they were placed in, and then we're going to look at the God-ordained purpose behind it all. And my, my hope is that we will see just how intentional God is always working in our lives, even when, or maybe especially when, we are the least aware of it. God is, is faithful to His own, and He uses our circumstances in life to bring us closer to Him, to bring us into more dependence upon Him. That's what we're going to see today. So let's look at this, and let's see how He develops that with these disciples. Let's start with the God-ordained circumstances of this remarkable story. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So again, John sets the scene for us here. And though he does not go into great detail, far less than Matthew and Mark, the details that he does include are intentional. They are in keeping with his theological purposes and themes. But we have to remember the context. This is all happening on the same day of the feeding of the 5,000. If you remember last week, this was all taking place very near the Passover. Uh, the ministry in Christ had been going on in Galilee for, for some time now, nonstop. Uh, the disciples and Jesus had been incredibly busy. Uh, Jesus had already commissioned his disciples and sent them out two by two to, to preach re repentance and even to heal the sick. Uh, they had already returned to him, and Jesus had been performing many, many signs, opening blind eyes and casting out demons and healing the sick and preaching the gospel. And as a result, as, as Mark describes it, because of all the people that kept coming to them, both Jesus and the disciples had, had no break, and they couldn't even find time to eat. They were, they were worn out, which was, which was actually the reason why they had crossed the Sea of Galilee in the first place. Now, Jesus said to them in Mark 6.31, Come, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. They were seeking rest. They were trying to get a, a break. However, as we looked, as they got in the boat, they were spotted by this massive crowd of people that was estimated to be up to around 20,000 people when you include all of the women and the children. Now, the 5,000 number was just a count of the men. Uh, but this massive crowd went around the, the north side of that lake and met them on the other side. Now, you might think that at this point, uh, seeing this crowd find them in a desolate place and giving them no rest that Jesus might have got a little annoyed. I'm, I'm just trying to get a, a break here and, and let my guys rest for a while. But that is, that is not at all what Jesus does. He does not get annoyed. In fact, on the contrary, Mark tells us that when he saw the crowd, he had compassion upon them. 
And so he fed them miraculously. He performed what was just by sheer scope the largest of all his signs, of all his miracles, supernaturally creating enough bread and fish to feed up to 20,000 people. And the disciples served them all. Now, I'm sure some of the adrenaline and the excitement of what was taking place had actually kind of carried them through all of it, but these guys had no break still. And not only did they seat the massive crowd in groups of 50s and 100s, but then they served this massive crowd, and then they cleaned up after that massive crowd, gathering up all the fragments in the baskets. They had the the very opposite of, of rest. But as a result of all this, the crowd was so taken by what Christ had done that they were ready to come and take Jesus by force to make Him their King. Now, they were not recognizing Him as the King of all kings. That was not their, their thought or their belief. They actually were just wanting a political deliverer. They saw him as a means to an end, a means to get what they want, which was freedom from the bondage of the Roman Empire. And as a result, Jesus withdrew himself without his disciples. Now, Mark fills in some details for us on this in Mark chapter 6. He lets us know that Jesus actually was the one who sent his disciples down to the boat to cross, and he went away for the purpose of, of prayer. He went to look away to be alone with God, to commune with his Father. And Jesus was not going to miss the opportunity to commune with his Father. He needed to commune with his Father. And you, just as an aside, you see this all through the life of Christ. He is, he is constantly slipping away to pray, to find time to seek God in prayer. You know, the truth is, when we think about that, if, if Jesus needed that, if Jesus made that a regular part of his life, how much more should we? How much more should we daily be depending upon and seeking God in prayer? Christ was ready to miss the boat to go seek the Lord in prayer. I would encourage you, church, to follow Christ in this, to find intentional and regular times to slip away and be with God every day, to prioritize it, as we see Christ does here. But I digress. This was actually not John's purpose here. Jesus, Jesus was actually doing something else by his withdrawal other than just prayer. And John is, is, is drawing that out because he has purpose in what he was doing for his disciples. See, John doesn't even tell us of his intention to go pray, nor does he tell us that he was the one who sent those disciples down to the boats. That's, that's not the point he's making. He just wants you to know that Jesus had withdrawn Verse 15, he had withdrawn by himself. In verse 16, his disciples were alone. This was, this was intentional, not merely on the part of John, but on the part of Christ. John is relaying the intentionality of Christ. They went down alone 
to the boat to cross the sea. And then he says this in verse 17. Look at the emphasis at the end of that verse. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. He wants you to know, as he is emphasizing this, Jesus is not there. He is not with them. His disciples are alone, and it is dark. John is painting this picture for us. And I think he is very intentionally and very effectively here linking the separation from Christ with the darkness. Remember, this light-darkness theme that John uses runs all through the Gospel of John. Christ is presented as the light, as the true light, as the light of the world. And to be separated from Christ is to be in the darkness. And John presents this on a physical level here, representing the spiritual reality. And you're meant to, you're meant to feel it. They are now navigating this sea without Christ in utter darkness. But then he adds to that, look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now this is something that the Sea of Galilee was and still is sometimes known for. Because of the geological features surrounding the area, it is, it is susceptible to sudden and intense onsets of strong wind, creating extremely rough waters. In fact, last year, the Sea of Galilee experienced a storm so bad that it left behind $50 million in property damage to the surrounding area. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it happens, these are not waters that you want to be on especially in the dark. Now, this is, a, this is a horrible situation these guys are in. Unless we forget, by this time, these, these guys are absolutely spent. They, they are exhausted. They never did get that rest that they had crossed over for in the first place. And just, and just think about the, the contrast of experience for them. Just a few hours prior, they are watching Christ perform a mind-blowing miracle and having the privilege to serve up miraculous food to a massive crowd of people that were ready to make their teacher their political leader in king. No doubt they were caught up in the excitement of it all, running on adrenaline, thinking this could be his great moment, which means as his disciples, this could be our great moment. They were probably looking at each other during this, thinking, is this real? Is this, is this really happening? There was likely just joy and excitement over everything that was going on. But now within a few hours, there's no crowd, there's no Christ there's no light. He has withdrawn, and now they are crossing back the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night in the dark, completely worn out and fighting a storm, likely wondering if they're even going to make it. It's a jarring contrast of experiences, to be sure. At this point, they're just trying to stay afloat and trying to figure out where they are in the dark, in this massive lake that they call the sea, which was about seven miles across. Now, we know that this is actually not the first time that this has happened to these guys. Several months before this, 
they were in a very similar situation, which Matthew and Mark both record for us. Only it was, it was both worse and better. It was worse because it seems like that storm was even more violent than this one. They were at the point where they were taking in water. They thought their lives were coming to an end. But it was better for one significant reason. Anybody know why? That's right. Christ was with them. Jesus was in the boat. Now, he was asleep, but he was in the boat. The disciples, fearing for their lives, awoke Jesus and asked him, Do you not care that we are perishing? And, of course, we know the story. Jesus woke up, he arose, and he rebuked the sea. He simply said, Peace, be still. Everything stopped. Silent. Undoubtedly, that was an impressionable experience for these disciples. In fact, Matthew 8, uh, Matthew tells us that they responded to that by saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey his command? They had the creator of the universe in the boat with them, displaying his power. But this time, he is, he is not there. And I'm sure many of them in their minds are thinking back on that moment in which he was there to calm things down, and they are feeling his absence, wishing he was with them, feeling very alone, feeling like Christ is not there when they needed him the most. And the truth is, this is actually not at all a foreign experience in the Christian life. Often we feel very close to God. We, we sense His leading in our lives. There is, there is a clarity, an obviousness, an excitement, and a joy to His hand at work in what He is doing in our lives. His Word is feeding our souls, and we, we just can't seem to get enough of it. There is an ease and a delight to prayer, and we feel very close to God. But then there are other times where we almost feel like God has abandoned us, where we feel like He has departed from us, where nothing is going right. His purposes are not at all clear. We cannot make sense of what is going on in our lives and what God could possibly be doing with the things that are happening. Prayer is difficult. The Word seems dry. And God just feels distant. Have you ever experienced that? I certainly have. And the truth is, often this is intentional on the part of God. I do not think this is a spiritualizing of this text to see it in this way. This is exactly the scenario Christ knew his disciples would be in. This is the lesson that he is teaching them. But we even see God operate this way with the saints of old. Think about Job for a second. Everything that he went through, his situation. He lost everything, save his life. And he felt distant from God as a result. Listen to his state of mind in Job chapter 30. Job says this. He says, Now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones. 
and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You ever felt like that? Job has. How about Jeremiah? Lamentations 3.8. He has made me to dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. And he has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. How about David and the other psalmists? I mean, the Psalms are just littered with these passages that express consternation over one's perceived isolation from God. You know, Psalm 13 is, is one such, such example. David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. See, the reality is, as, as believers, as, as God's children, as God's people, we will all face times in our lives where we sense God's absence, where God feels distant, where we feel alone. Wilderness seasons in which it seems that everything is going wrong, God has left me, and our souls are crying out, How long, O Lord? Make no mistake about it, not only will you face those seasons in life, but God has intentionally ordained them for you if you are His, if you are His child. But He's done so for a purpose. This is always the way He has operated with His people. Just like He has ordained this situation for these disciples, for a purpose, which we will see. Let's look at the, we've, we're looking at the God-ordained circumstance, but now let's look at the, the God-ordained purpose. Look at verse 19. It says, When they had rowed about three or four th- miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So John continues to give us little details here to help us get a picture of, of this scenario. And he gives us an estimated distance of how much progress they had made. In the Greek, in the original language, it reads that he had gone 25 to 30 stadia. Stadia was a a measurement that was equivalent to about 600 feet. So this is truly an approximation of anywhere from three to three and a half miles, somewhere in that range. Now, why is that important? Why did John include that? Well, again, because this, this lake at its longest point was seven miles wide. John wants you to know that they are somewhere right in the middle of it. They are in the, the dead center of this lake, rowing in the dark, fighting this storm. 
And there's, there's no telling how far they had blown off course. They were going blind here. There's a storm overhead. There's no stars to look at. They didn't have lights on their boat. They were going blind. And Mark's account tells them that they had made headway painfully. And they had been at it almost all night long, only to make it three to three and a half miles. He says at this point that it was the fourth watch of the night, which is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the darkest part of the night. And it was then that they look up and they see a faint figure of a man walking towards them on top of the water. And they were understandably frightened. You would be too. I don't care how tough you think you are. If you're out in the middle of a body of water in the middle of the night in complete darkness in a storm and you see a man walking on top of water towards you on the water, you would be terrified. I would too. And that's the language that Mark uses. They were, they were terrified. And he says they, they thought it was a ghost. They thought it was a, a phantom, an apparition coming towards them. How else are you to make sense of this? Now, Liberal scholars are desperate to try to explain this away. They're desperate to try to explain away the supernatural aspects of the Bible. And so they've tried to come up with some explanations as to what, what could be going on here. Now, one has proposed that the language here means that he was walking beside the seashore and they saw him. But one, that's just simply not what that language means. The preposition here means upon he was walking upon the water. It does not mean beside. It can't mean beside. And further, this is exactly why John includes how far they had gone. They were nowhere near land. They were out in the middle of the lake. Now, another theory that, that truly shows how desperate they were was put forth by three liberal scholars. And they at least recognize that language means what it means. You, you, you can't change the meaning of words. That's not how things work. It does mean upon. So instead, they've come up with this. They said, There is a substantial chance that a thin layer of ice thick enough to support human weight could form on top of the warm spring water below. What? I'm not kidding. That's their theory. But, I mean, my, my question for them is, in what world is there a chance of that? In, in this wavy lake in the middle of spring in a storm, there's some kind of icy path through the middle of the waves leading out to the middle of the lake, just right to where this boat is? Strong enough to hold up a man? Come on. That would be as supernatural as what actually happened. That doesn't help you. But the truth is, the unbelieving heart will do anything to take away the deity of Christ. Because it does not want to be accountable to Him. And that's exactly what this story is, is screaming forth. That God, the Creator, is here demonstrating His power over creation. There is no other explanation. The picture painted is that of an unruly sea having its way with very experienced fishermen all night long. And John uses the simple word, walk, to talk how, about how Jesus got to the same point that they were at. There is meant to be seen an ease 
to what he is doing. He's not struggling. He's not, he's not fighting. He's just walking upon the water with ease, as if he's walking on solid ground, as if he's taking a stroll through a park on a sunny day. The Creator is just having his way with creation. As J.C. Ryle put it, he said, it's just as easy for him to walk on the sea as it was for him to form the sea in the beginning. And it was just as easy for him to suspend the common laws of nature as it was for him to form those laws and impose those laws in the first place. This was the creator of all things. John said it in the beginning of the book. In John 1, all things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, including the sea upon which he is walking. Christ is here showing himself to be who he really is, God, the creator in the flesh. But the Jewish reader, the Jewish reader who knows his Old Testament might be having another passage from Job ringing in their ears as they see this story unfolding. In Job chapter 9, Job describes the ease with which God can alter and command his own creation and display his power. Listen to what he says. He says, It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. The one who can have his way with creation, the one who can shake the earth, the one who stretches out the heavens, is here trampling down the waves of the sea as he walks towards his disciples. But the disciples are terrified because they do not yet recognize him. And in compassion, is an act of mercy in compassion towards these men to alleviate their fear. Look what Jesus says. Look at verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Notice John starts this sentence here with the adversative conjunction, but. They were frightened, but he said to them, Jesus' words were intended to alleviate their fears. He was going right after their fears. These were words of mercy and compassion to bring comfort to a worn-out, perplexed, disoriented, and frightened group of men. And can you imagine how much their hearts must have leaped with joy when they heard the familiar sound of his voice in the dark. At the climax of their exhaustion in fear, they hear the voice of their master. And as Jesus will say later on, John 10, my sheep know my voice. Instantly, they know it's going to be okay. He's here. But it is not just that Jesus spoke, it is also what he spoke. Just two simple clauses here. And both of them have massive 
significant. And the first clause actually gives the reason for the second. First, Jesus says, it is I. Now, that translation is a perfectly legitimate translation. Uh, The words he used here were a common expression of self-identification in the first century. Other people in the scriptures uh, will be seen using the exact same words. However, when these words are found in certain contexts and coming from the mouth of Christ, they have massive theological significance. Because the words that he uses here are ego a me. I am. If you're not familiar with why that is significant, it is because these are the very sacred words that God used as his own self-expression when he introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. It was then that God was commissioning Moses to be the deliverer of his people. And Moses had a question for God. Moses asked God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God responds to Moses, says this, Exodus 3, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses could not see God, but he could hear his voice in the burning bush. And there the Lord declared him to be, to be the self-existent God, Yahweh, the great I Am. And here, Jesus is taking the same language and using it for himself. And though the disciples cannot see him, they do recognize him. They hear the voice coming from the one standing on the water declaring, I Am. Declaring for himself, the identity of the eternal, self-existent God. It's for that reason, because of who He is, that the second clause has so much weight. Do not be afraid. This, This comforting and tender command was built upon what He said at first. The reason why they were not to be afraid was because God was with them. And this is, a, this is a truth that is just a, a repeated refrain all through the Old Testament. God's people are to be a people who do not fear because God is with them. I mean, this is Psalm 23, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? For you are with me. Some of Moses' final words to the children of Israel before he died were, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. David, no doubt playing off those words, charges his, his son Solomon as he is dying, and he says to him, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God, even my God, 
is with you. Or a text that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, God himself speaking through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43 to his people. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. This was simply and clearly a repeated refrain all through the Old Testament. But there is one psalm in particular that, as one commentator, Edward Klink, put it, reads almost like a commentary on Jesus' words here. That's Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Is that not what Christ is here declaring to these disciples? Know that I am God, and I am with you. I am your refuge and your strength. Therefore, you you do not have to fear even when the waters roar and foam. See, God's people have always been instructed to understand that we are to be a people who do not fear in life. For God is with us. And Christ is here showing that to these disciples. Remember, they thought they were alone. They thought they were without Christ. And no, no doubt they were, they were in a place where they thought, there is no way He can get to us now. We are truly on our own. Christ taught them something else. He taught them that He is the ever-present, ever-faithful sovereign. He is the creator of all things. He is the one for whom there is no barrier. Through wind and wave and darkness, in the middle of a sea of distress, Christ treads upon the waters with ease to make it back to His own, to bring comfort and guidance. There is no place they could go that Christ could not find them. If ever there was, this was it. But He appears in the middle of the night, in the middle of the sea, to demonstrate that He is the God who is there. Though they felt His absence, Christ shows them that they were actually never truly alone. Can you imagine, after this experience how much weight Christ's last words to them in the Gospel of Matthew carried. I am with you always until the end of the age. They knew that to be true by experience. Then John brings this story to a simple close in verse 21. Look at what he says. He says, Then they were glad to take him into the boat, And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. In concise form, John communicates 
the joy with which they responded to the voice of Christ. They were, they were glad, they were, they were willing, they were desirous to take him into the boat. And both Mark and Matthew tell us that as soon as he got into the boat, the, the wind ceased, the waters calmed, and they were immediately taken to safe harbor. The question here is, the, the debate that people have, is John implying that this happened supernaturally or that this just happened with ease after everything they've gone through? I kind of think the language lends itself to a supernatural ending, but it's not exactly clear, and there's, there's good brothers on both sides of that. But at the end of the day, either way, they arrived safely by the power of Christ. And that is what John is wanting us to see here. Now, a question that we need to ask that it, we haven't completely addressed yet is why did John include this story here? I mean, chapter 6 is supremely about the feeding of the 5,000 and then the subsequent bread of life discourse that is connected to it. But in between those two elements, we have this. Why? Was John just trying to communicate this as a matter of chronology, chronological history, or is there something else going on here? I think from what we have seen thus far through six chapters of this book, it's, it's safe to assume that nothing in John's gospel is without a purpose to the overall flow. There is very much purpose here beyond just chronology, and it is very much tied to what we went through last week. Remember, what took place last week was not just for the crowd, the feeding of the 5,000, but it was for the disciples. Now, Jesus began this whole thing back in verse 5 when he asked Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And John explicitly let us know in verse 6 that he had asked them this to test him. Jesus was testing his disciples. And the truth is, they blew it. Despite everything they had already seen and known of Christ, they absolutely blew it. Philip says, we, we don't have enough money. Andrew says, we don't have enough food. None of them were rightly seeing or looking to Jesus in that moment. None of them were looking to Him as the provisions for both themselves and for the people. And even after the miracle, they nor the crowd rightly saw the glory of Christ manifest before them. They, said, they saw instead a miracle worker and a potential deliverer. And this is why God ordained this situation. This is why Jesus withdrew. Jesus set it up to teach them the very lesson that they had missed at the feeding. Mark actually makes this connection explicitly clear. Listen to the end of the story from Mark's account. Mark 6.51 It says, And Jesus got into the boat with them. The wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Why? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, Mark explicitly draws the connection for us. The lo loaves were meant to reveal Christ. They, they were meant as an opportunity for the disciples to depend not on themselves, but on the God who was with them, to see Christ for who He truly is. But they missed it. And so Christ graciously allows them this trial, seemingly without Him, 
so that they would see and worship him rightly. And that is, in fact, how Matthew ends his account of the same story. It says in Matthew 14, When he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. That is the, actually the first mention in Matthew's gospel of the disciples worshiping Christ. The lesson had had its intended effect. Their hearts were hard at the feeding, but Christ broke their hardness, revealing Himself, and they worshipped Him in response. See, the truth is, contrary to what, what some may say or believe, God will often give you more than you can handle. He will often do that. But He does so for a reason. He does so so that you might know Him. So that you might experience your weakness and your frailty without Him. And so that you might depend upon Him all the more. This was the Apostle Paul's experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is relaying to the Corinthians what had been going on. Listen to what he says. He says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. God gave the Apostle Paul more than he could handle, beyond his strength. But it was for the purpose of drawing him even closer to himself. Know this, church, you will go through times where you may feel like God has left you. But the truth is, He never has, no matter how you feel, and He never will. Not if you are truly His. Not if you are truly in Christ. Not if you're truly trusting in Christ. He has promised never to leave you, nor forsake you. To be with you always, until the end of the age. But when you're in those times, I would encourage you to just go back to the truths of Psalm 46. Be still. Know that I am God and that He is with you. You keep trusting. You keep depending. He will grow you in the trial. It will not last forever. And like the disciples, He will lead you to safe harbor. That is His promise. That's where we are all heading. To the shores of glory. And He has guaranteed for those who are His, He will lead us to safe harbor. As Jude says, He is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. No matter what trials you go through, Know that is God's ultimate purpose at work in your life. 
He will bring you to that safe harbor. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we are not reliant upon our own strength to make it to the shores of glory. For if we were, none of us would make it. Thank you that you will see to it that we learn the lessons that we need to learn in this life. That we may depend upon you, seek you. Father, you are our refuge. You are our fortress. You are our very present help in times of trouble. Help us, Lord, to be still. To remind ourselves of who you are, knowing that you are God and that you are with us despite what our feelings or emotions may speak to us. Your word speaks a better word. Lord, we want to rely upon the truth of your word. Pray for the grace for everyone here, for those who here who do feel that they are in a wilderness season. Lord, would you speak a word of comfort to their hearts? Would you help them to find truths in your word that would speak comfort about who you are and what you are doing in the midst of this season that they are passing through? Thank you for this glorious story of how Christ came to his disciples and how that even ministers to our own souls to this day. Lord, help us to continue to rely upon him, trusting in his faithful work in our lives. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing the song in response. Be still, my soul.